You're listening to a Hebrew in Israel podcast with Yoel HaLevi, exploring the language, culture, and history of the Bible. For more information, visit us at hebrewinisrael.net. Shalom everyone, you're here again with an episode of Tzor Mikra, And this week we are in the, the parasha of Shoftim. As I usually say, I hope everyone enjoyed the previous programs, and hopefully you enjoyed this one as well. So this week we're in Parashat Shoftim. Shoftim is named after the opening of the parasha, which means a judge. I think I've explained this here before, but if I haven't, I'll do it again. A shofet technically means a district ruler. It doesn't really mean judge. It means a ruler of some sort. The way the, the form appears in other sources indicates uh, that the, the form Shafat or Shafatum, so on, as you can see, I compare a lot to Akkadian because it's, it's actually a, a very close language to Hebrew and it gives us a lot of the, of the legal terminology, which is very important, that it basically a, a regional, a district uh, ruler of some sort that has obviously some kind of authority in law as well which means this person that not only does rules, he also gives them law and, and people are trialed before him and so on. And as he states, the shoftim veshotrim zem necha bechol she'arecha, that you place shoftim, which are types of judges, and shotrim, which are basically a type of law enforcement um, power. And basically the gate was always the place, the she'arim was always the place where these people would sit, it's very interesting that many of the documents that we find from, say, different places around Israel are always somewhere around the gate. Actually, in Kherbet Kayafa, they discovered one of the first, actually one of the earliest legal documents that we actually have uh, that seems to be uh, Israelite, which actually mentions a, a widow and so on. It seems to be that that's actually some kind of a legal document. It's actually a new thing because we've never actually found too many legal documents except for things which are much, much later. So this was a, a big discovery. One of the subjects in this week's parasha is actually kingship. So we mentioned a ruler, the shofet, but I actually want to focus on the, on the other type of ruler, the king. Now, first of all, when you go through the Tanakh, you see that the king is a very controversial subject. It's very interesting because most of us, you know, we sit around, we're waiting for the Mashiach to show up, and, and we're waiting for the house of David to be reestablished. But then we also read about the arguments about kingship. And this argument carried on for a very, very long time. And not only did it carry on for a very long time, one of the difficulties we have is that there's really some kind of an, a, a layer of argument against kingship in the Tanakh. And I'll point out to some of these. And... What we find here is there's no real problem in having a king as long as he follows certain rules. The problem I think most people had with kings back then was the idea of who gave you the authority, kind of like the problem we have today. Everyone tries to claim authority, everyone tries to claim that they're the one in charge, and everyone's try trying to be in charge of everything, and what gives you the right to make a decision for me, which is, I think, an argument that we can easily say has been existence with any society, period. In other words, there's nothing unique to this argument when it comes to Israel. I think this is a well-known argument, which brings us to the question of authority itself. The authority 
over man is always a big question because we've always had religious people dictating to, to us what exactly is to be done under the authority of God. And nowadays, with the, the, the so-called Age of Enlightenment, so-called, really is so-called, and then with the modern age and so on, people have started thinking differently. People are rebelling against religions, religions and religious institutions, and, and now people want to be free, and some people take the concept of freedom and put it into religion, reinventing whatever faith they have, kind of introducing, oh, no, it's not what it means, it's something else, and the arguments between the conservative movement and the reform movement in Judaism and orthodoxy, and then people just want to keep Torah. Uh, we have also in Christianity the thousands and thousands of different denominations and so on, and then Islam, modern Islam, extreme Islam, and so on. You ask a simple question, wait, if, if, if there's a will of God here, which means there's a source to all of these opinions, there's a source, presumably, to everything that we say here, how is it that people argue so much? And that's the point. The point here is that people want authority to themselves. And they'll do anything to try and claim that the authority is in their hands. And this is where the Torah establishes something very clear. It says, the authority of ruling over Israel is through my will as God. And God says... I will send people who will be the ones who are my messengers. Now, again, like I said about the subject of prophecy, people argued what is true prophecy. I don't think God intends to leave us completely in the dark the whole time. Just, I, I'm just going to argue this from a rational point of view. I don't think it makes sense that God will, would just leave us in the dark the whole time. Today, if anyone claims authority, then they're claiming it just from their own whatever. But... When the temple stood and when there was a, 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 a court of elders and so on, the authority was very clear due, due to the continuation generation after generation of leaders that received information from the generation before them. And today, really, to establish authority, is I personally think, is has to have divine intervention. And what the Torah tells us here in this parasha, it, it says you can put a king. Okay? It says, Ki tavo el ha'aretz asher Adonai lohecha noten lach, v'yirishtah v'yashavta bah, v'amata asima alay melech k'chol ha'goyim asher sevivotai. When you come to the land, which the Lord your God is, is giving to you, and you inherit it, and you dwell in it, and you will say, I will place upon myself a king like all the rest of the nations which are around me. There's a clarification about the word goy. The word goy today is used to indicate Gentile, but goy back then just meant nation. So there's really, I mean, even Israel is the Goy. It says, Mika Israel, Goy Echad Ba'aretz. Who is like your people? Israel, one Goy in the land. So Goy doesn't really mean a Gentile. So it says in verse, uh, this is again chapter 17, verses 14, 15, and so on. It says in verse 15, Som tasim alecha melech asher yivhar Adonai lohecha. Bo. Forgot the, the preposition there. So it says, You will surely place a king upon you which the Lord your God will choose. From your own brothers you will place upon yourself a king. You will not place upon yourself an, a foreign person. So when you want to say someone who's not an Israelite, then the word nukhri comes into play, which means someone who is foreign, which can also mean so-called Gentile, who is not from your brothers. So it, God already says something very simple. You want a king? Great. 
I will be the one who chooses him. Now, one has to sit down and think about it, that if God chose the king, then what is the argument? Where does the argument come from? And really, the the problem that we have with kingship in Israel is that really there were several houses which were chosen. And it kind of puts us in, the great, in, 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 a, in a big dilemma. If I was living back in the day of the first temple, it's a dilemma. Because the house of Saul were chosen, then the house of David were chosen, and then as, as a secondary choice, also the house of, of Jeroboam, of Yeroboam. And that places everyone in an awkward position. Now, what they actually did is politicize the whole thing. It was a religious issue. That the house of David wasn't keeping to the Torah the way it should. And that's the authority one a king actually has. If you go by the Torah, then you are allowed to do whatever you want as a king. But if you don't abide to the Torah, then you have no right to rule. And God turned around to Jeroboam and said, you'll be king instead. But that house of Jeroboam was replaced four generations later. And there were plenty of houses. If you look through the kings of the northern kingdom, you, anyone who's studied the book of kings will see it, that the because of the, the politics and especially the, the, the lack of, of observance of the Torah, the king lost his right and had to be replaced. The house of David was a very, very unique situation that though there were kings from the house of David that rebelled against Torah, the house of David continued. And that's really the, the part of the idea of the authority as well. God can raise a king and bring him down and so on. And it's all through the decision of God. But the house of David is a very, very unique situation. It's a house that's supposed to rule forever. And without going to the whole discussion about, you know, what about today where we don't really necessarily know exactly who's from the house of David and so on. Yes, but at the moment there's no there's no actual um, rulership, there's no actual kingdom of Israel, there's no state that's actually based on the rules of the Torah. So there's really no there's no really no obligation here to actually have a king. The state of Israel is a is a big question, and and this is why we also have people which are anti-Zionist because they argue that if if we are to be on the land, it's only when the Messiah shows up. And I really don't want to go into that whole discussion. I want to stay focused on what the Torah says here. The Torah basically says, you want to be king? Great. But remember that a king has to be humble. He is not the real ruler of Israel. He is the ruler of as like a vassal king of God. You are ruler because God placed you there. This is why we find in many places in the Torah that the language in relation to God, is very similar to what we find in Near Eastern documents that indicate very similar words, very similar statements, and so on. And the structure of Deuteronomy is very similar to these uh, to these uh, documents. So the king has to remain humble. This, this is one of the things. A king loses his right to rule when he starts thinking that he is the one who is really in power and charge. A king is actually under God. This is why a king of Israel never takes the title of king of the world, king of the four corners, ruler of the seas, whatever, all these different titles. And this is why we, don't, we never hear imagery of kings with horns, things which are usually kept for the divine. Because a king is not divine. A king is a human being and is, is bowed, bound to the rules that God gave mankind. 
So besides everything a king has to keep in the Torah, he's given a special set of rules that limits his ability to grow above everyone else. In other words, a king of Israel is is limited, and he be, his rights to rule, or sorry, his 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 power of rulership through whatever he's allowed to obtain is limited. Which 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 is very important because the moment a king thinks that he ha, has the power to do whatever he wants. That's when he turns from a king to a dictator. But a king is from your brothers, as the verse says. So he's not allowed to have a lot of horses. Now, besides what the verse says here, this is verse 16, that he will not bring the people back to Egypt. Because remember, it's not just returning to Egypt. It's bringing Egyptian culture into your world. Okay? It's... It's... Allowing Egyptian influence on the world you live in. Egypt was the, one of the biggest exporters of horses, period. They would export a lot of horses, though the Hittites were really the ones, uh, sorry, the, uh, either the Hittites or the Hurrians were the ones that brought in the, uh, the chariots to this region. The, the Egyptians took it to the next, the next level and made massive chariots and bred a lot of horses and so on. So it's not just sending the people back to Egypt in the sense of, I told, just took you out of there, gave you a land, now you're going back there. It's also an issue of Egyptian influence, of culture. And, and we see this with the, with the daughter of Pharaoh, with King Solomon. He had too many horses. He kept on importing and also probably exporting horses through e from Egypt through the land. And that corrupted him to a point that he brought in the daughter of Pharaoh. King Solomon is basically the the epitome, unfortunately the epitome of what a king is not supposed to do. In the beginning he was perfectly fine, but we need to realize that King Solomon made a crucial mistake in the way he ruled. So he bought a lot of horses. Now it says that he won't have too many wives, verse 17. King Solomon did the exact same thing. Same thing. Though most of the weddings were more political weddings, and from what we know from other cultures, like for example, um, political marriages between the Hittites and the Egyptians, the, the, usually, even, even with a large kingdom like Hatti, which, which sent, uh, which sent um, um, the one of their daughters to marry the, the Egyptians so they can have a treaty with them, and the, she, she was sent to obscurity. She got married, sent to the palace, and no one knew who she really was. There's even a letter that mentions that they actually had no idea who she was. They barely knew her name. So he shouldn't have too many wives. King Solomon did the same thing. And he shouldn't have too much silver and gold. Now remember, silver and gold is considered to be the strength of a, of a nation. The, the um, mercantilistic method, method that was around to at least around the, uh, at least around the, I'm going to say the um, 19th century, where a lot of nations preferred to accumulate gold and silver here, the king is not supposed to accumulate all the gold and silver in the name of the state. He's not a state. He's a, he's a ruler of a confederacy of tribes. And that's probably one of the reasons why there's a lot, was a lot of strife over this whole subject of, of kingship and so on. But here, here's the big punch. Verse 18 says the following, and I, excuse me if there's a hum or a buzz in the background. Um, there's someone doing some construction work here, and they're making a lot of noise. Um, and it says in verse 18, When he sits on the throne, 
וכתב לו משנה התורה הזאת. He will write for himself the משנה, and the question is, is he referring to the entire Torah, just the book of Deuteronomy, section of the book of Deuteronomy, but it says that he has to write this משנה תורה, which is probably another name for Deuteronomy, on a book, על ספר, מלפני הכהנים הלווים, from before, from in front of the priests, the Levite priests. As I said, uh, earlier recordings, there's a whole thing here of definitions of what is a Levite and what is a priest and so on. But this is the big punch. A king has to have a copy of the rules so he never goes astray from these rules. And this, this, this is a very, very important thing for a leader. A leader needs to know where he comes from, what he is obligated to do. He is not there for himself because of because God gave it to me. He's not Louis the Fourteenth who said, "I don't care about the people. God gave me the right to rule." No, God gave you to, the right to rule, but you are obligated to keep the Torah. And if the king is obligated to keep the Torah, then everyone is obligated to keep the Torah. And if the king keeps the Torah, then the nation will keep the Torah as well, and there will be no questions about what is allowed and what is forbidden and so on. The moment the rulership loses track of the Torah, the people will follow suit. So this is why you need to choose your rulers in a smart way. Are the rulers of the state of Israel good? Most definitely not. But out of many of the rulers, that many of the people who are chosen to govern the country, Netanyahu, for example, comes from a place where he does believe in the Tanakh, and though I am very doubtful if he really keeps Torah, at least there's a certain element here of observation and so on. I am not very pro Netanyahu, but, uh, you know, it is what it is. And I don't really want to mix too much politics. But we, we, I think many people ask themselves the question today of, of the politics of today and what we have today as, as our leaders and so on. That if a state is established as a, relig- as, as a state that has a, a constitution, then that, that ruler has to keep that constitution. And when it comes to Israel, the constitution is the Torah, period. And it says in verse 19, And it will be with him, the book will be with him the whole time, and he will read in it all the days of his life, for he will learn to fear, this is a big thing, to fear the Lord, uh, his, uh, his God, and to keep all the words of the Torah, of this Torah, on the, all, the, um, all the rules, to do them, all these rules to do them. And then it says in verse 20, So his, so his heart does not go above his brothers, and that he will not move away from the commandments, from the commandment le- right or left. For he, so, he, so in order that he will have longevity as, a, as in his kingdom, he and his sons amongst Israel. He is not above Israel. He is to rule. He is there to organize. Every, every civilization needs some kind of organization. If there's no authority anywhere, and no one has you know, the right to say what's right and wrong, then society goes into chaos. Which is really what happened in the time of the judges. The time of the judges, we, we keep on hearing, there is no king in Israel, each man does whatever he pleases. And the book of Judges is really the location where we find some of the criticism over, uh, over leadership, which appears in chapter 9. And we have the man called Yotam ben Yerubal. Okay, Yotam was the sole survivor of the attack by his brother Avimelech over his other brothers. And he gives a parable, and the parable he actually talks about 
different trees and they wanted to a leader and they choose this lower tree that to, to rule over them. And the question that's asked here is, is he really making a mockery of rulership or is he saying that the rulership we have at the moment is a mockery? The Book of Kings seems to be a book that's actually pro-kingship. It has no problem with the concept of kingship. What it's trying to say is that you need to choose your ruler's right. And a man like Avimelech is inappropriate. He's from he's a, from a lower status. He he is a violent man. He's harmed other people. Don't make him your king. And that's really the point of the parable. He's saying he's the lowest of the lowest of the lowest. How come can you have him as how, how can you can even take a person like this to be your king? And then, besides this, we have the question about what Samuel was talking about in First Samuel chapter seven. Because we have the rules of the king. And then suddenly we have in the book of Samuel this description of what a king is going to do. And in what it describes here, it, sorry, Samuel 8, it says if he'll take, it says in verse 11 onwards, this will be the Mishpat HaMelech. So there's the thing called the Chok HaMelech or Mitzvat HaMelech and then there's Mishpat HaMelech and some scholars try to argue that there's a difference between the two and so on. But I think that what the Torah gives us is the rules and stipulations of what does it mean to be a king in Israel. And Samuel is really giving us the details of how a king in reality functions. And he says, he'll take from your sons and daughters to do the, be different workers and he'll place different types of ministers and he will take from your fields because any administrative system needs a, uh, a an income. So there's a taxation. So the question is, what is Samuel really trying to do? Is he trying to move them away from the idea of having a king? Or is he really trying to tell them, listen, I like all the fantasies that you have about kings. This is what a king really is. You're a young nation. You've never really had a king. And this is what a king is like. So the question that we need to ask ourselves in the future is that we want a king and i think a king will be a very good thing for the people of israel because it will be a, an authority that you can't argue with and if it's an authority that is governed by torah it's an authority, an authority that will do tzedek mishpatu meshirim which is the ideal of, a, of any king but let us not forget that a king means that there's an absolute power and if there's an absolute power we will not have the right to argue against how he's keeping Torah, how he's governing, how he's doing this, how he's doing that. The moment a king is established and he reestablishes a temple and he reestablishes the, the leadership that existed, our entire world will change. And this is going to go back to what I spoke about the issue of the temple. If we revert back to a reality of a temple, if we revert back to a reality of keep the nation keeping Torah, it is going to be very different than what we're used to today. There will be reinforcement. There will be authority. A person will not be allowed to do whatever they want. If you break the Sabbath, there will be a punishment. And so on. Okay? So, I think what Samuel did here is really give people a better understanding of the thing that they were hoping for. And he wasn't against it. What he was actually trying to say is at least try to wake up and realize what will happen. And I, I kind of, for several years now, I've been trying to get people to understand that we've developed a lot of fantasies about Torah, about the temple, about everything, about being accepted into the covenant and so on. But 
many of us focus about the beauty of things, like a book I saw in a, in a bookstore uh, two or three days ago, the beautiful verses of the Bible. And I said, I wonder if someone would ever write a book called the horrible verses of the Bible, the violent verses of the Bible. We need to remember something very, very important. At the end of the day, being in the covenant of the Torah is a beautiful thing, is a wonderful thing, is an amazing thing. But let us not drown in the fantasy. So many people that I meet that they want to go through conversion or they want to keep Torah and so on, and they're all so excited. And then they get really, really bummed out because they discover it wasn't all the fantasies they built up for themselves. And the same thing here. Don't build up false imagination about things. Be down to earth, be practical, be observant of the Torah, but remember that it's down on this world, it's down in this earth. Okay? That's the message of this week's study. What is a king? Can a king have absolute power? Do we need a king? And what does it mean to actually have a kingship? Bringing Torah down back to earth instead of it hovering somewhere in an upper sphere. We want to go back to keeping all the Torah, but we also need to mentally prepare ourselves for the concept of keeping the entire Torah. I think that in our generation, we're probably stepping closer and closer and closer. I think we're at the stage now we need the mental preparation towards Torah. When the king will come out, we cheer to him, we need to realize that's the authority. We don't argue with that. Okay? Whatever opinion you have, if you want it, if you want to turn around and say, I think there's something wrong here, you make an appeal. But it won't be like today. You will not be able to judge as you please. There will be a decree from the, from the high court of how to keep Torah. There will be elders that will tell us what to do and not to. There will be Levites and priests that will govern the people according to Torah. You'll be, I think it would be logical to present your opinion, but who says my logic here is, 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 is the one they used back then? Okay, so it's important. One of the very big things that I do in my own work is trying to understand the reality of how the world existed back then as an historian as a, as a, and also as a Bible scholar. So I hope you enjoyed this recording. Again, if you have any comments, anything you want to say, any focuses, anything you want to maybe expand in this subject of kingship, there's a lot to say. There's a lot of literature about the movement from tribal, a tribal system to kingship and how that collided with everything, that the people had difficulty with this idea. We have our own little government, each one of the tribes, and now we have this one king, and, and, and think about it. We want to do the same thing, but are we really ready for it? If they look at the Tanakh, the Tanakh gives us a lot of information about what happened there. In any case, I want to wish everyone a Shabbat Shalom, and hopefully you'll be able to hear me again uh, next week.